The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. A few weeks ago, when I was first working on this sermon, my wife was watching a television program about Queen Elizabeth I, and lately she has become interested in English history. And she was watching this program about Queen Elizabeth and her ascent to the throne in the 16th century. And part of that story is about a relative named Lady Jane Grey, who is a cousin and named as the successor to King Henry VI. And she was known as the Nine-Day Queen because her reign lasted only nine days, and then later she was beheaded. And the reason for her death was a power struggle over the throne, and because she was a believer in Christ, and she refused to accept Roman Catholicism. Her story is just remarkable. Her faith was documented in a book by Faith Cook, who told the story of how that at 15 years old, Lady Jane Grey stood up to her Roman Catholic inquisitors and refused to recant her trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And all that she needed to do was just renounce her faith and she would be saved from death, but she wouldn't do it. Elizabeth and her half-sister, uh, half rather, Mary, were daughters of King Henry VIII, and Elizabeth was removed from the line of succession because of Henry's marriage to her mother, Anne Boleyn, which was not recognized by the Catholic Church. And so Mary became the queen instead of Elizabeth, but eventually Elizabeth prevailed and became perhaps the most famous monarch in English history. And my point in telling you this is not the history of it, but to get to the, to the last words that Elizabeth spoke in her death, and I'm paraphrasing this, but Elizabeth said that she would gladly give it all up. She said that if she could live, that she would give up her riches and right to the throne. Riches and fame never do anybody any good if you don't have life. The dead that are in their graves have no use for bank accounts, not for financial portfolios. Life is short. The Bible says that our days are few. And the Lord knows what those days are, and he knows what they are compared to eternity. And so he tells us that we should never trust in the riches of this world, but that we should trust Christ and lay up treasures in heaven. And what I've just told you is not the thinking of the modern church. The gospel that you hear today is one of health and prosperity, and it tells you that what you need more than anything is to be satisfied, to be, to be self-fulfilled, to be filled with personal esteem, which will come if you're wealthy. If you're rich, or not rich rather, your faith is deficient, because worldly success, that is God's design for your life. The prosperity gospel is not new. Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, and for sure the prosperity gospel is not new. 2,000 years ago, there, there was a church in Asia Minor in the city of Laodicea, and they were a church that was consumed with the idolatry of money, of possessions, and their hope was in their riches. 
Their faith and their prosperity consisted in wealth, which is really no different from the ideology of most churches in America today. The Laodicean church was the lukewarm church, and basically it wasn't of any use to the Lord because it was a church focused inwardly on self rather than on the Lord of the church. And sadly, Christ was not in this church, but he's outside knocking with no entrance. They were consumed with their wealth. They hadn't surrendered to everything that they were to Christ. And because of this, Jesus was outside pleading for entrance in They were once a true church, but they weren't any longer. And so Christ demanded repentance. And for them to replace worldly riches with the treasures, not with the treasures of this life, but with eternal life. I'd like you to look in Revelation chapter 3. Our main text verse today is verse number 18, but we'll read a few verses here. Revelation 3 verse number 14 And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things said the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." The Laodicean church is the last of the seven churches. I believe that it most resembles the modern church. I believe that it is the church that's characteristic of the days, the last days before Christ returns. And how long those days will be and when those days will end, I don't know. But what I do see in the Bible is a continual warning that churches in the last times, will be turned to fables. They'll be turned to the fable of a false gospel. And I see in the scriptures that it describes churches that will become immoral, when they will be tolerant of evil lifestyles. And I see in the scriptures a time when there are false prophets that will pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ with wealth and health and claim that it is God's way to contentment. And this is what we see described in these verses of the Laodicean church. They said that they were rich and they are increased with goods, that they need nothing. In other words, they need nothing more than what they already have. And Jesus used this misplaced hope that they had in their wealth and their riches to compare to their spiritual condition. Their hope was wrongly in those things that he says will make you wretched wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And folks, if that is the way that Jesus describes your religion, you are in big trouble. And yet, that is the religion 
of the United States today, a religion that's preached across the world. And if you believe that, and that's what your church teaches, then you are headed for hell if you believe it. And this is what the false gospel and prosperity preachers do to people today. Oh, in the message, I want to return to Christ's assessment of this Laodicean church and the discipline that he proposed for them that would cure their sickening spiritual condition. So we're looking at point three of our outline, and that is the discipline they must accept. If Christ, who is on the outside of the church, as we see in verse number 20, if he is to move on the inside, then a change is in order. This is a church very heavily influenced by the culture of their city. They are a self-sufficient people because they lived in a self-sufficient town. This, this city of Laodicea was at the crossroads of two trade routes, two very important trade routes, which made them a banking center. It made them a place of commerce for people that passed through. And then they also collected a fortune from the sale of a of highly prized clothing that was made from the wool of black sheep that was raised in the area. And then on top of that, they had still another fortune, and that came through uh, the sale of a medicinal balm made in their world-renowned health center. And Jesus used those three aspects of prosperity to compare how the church had floundered because they had replaced heaven's treasures with all of this worldly wealth. Everything that they could have outwardly is what they lacked inwardly and spiritually. And what they had was a value system that was upside down and they had placed their poorest spiritual values at the top. And so we see in verse number 18 that he counsels the church to go after a different type of wealth. To go after one that is everlasting. A wealth that never loses its worth. It won't be the wealth that the world offers because that's the kind of wealth that's left behind. That's the kind that stays in the grave. And it brings no lasting contentment, as Queen Elizabeth learned. How can you have contentment when there is no life? And so first, Jesus says to this church, I counsel you to buy of me gold that is tried in the fire. So we look first at, at gold, and this is the discipline of values. That they must change their minds about what the Lord considers valuable. In another place, Jesus told a rich young man that he must sell everything that he had and to give it to the poor. Selling everything would prove that his faith was real and that he fully trusted God would supply all of his needs. You see, the scriptures teach that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the thing that locks in the treasures of heaven that could never be had without it. Now, the fire that we see here in verse number 18 may, may well represent this kind of faith that is tried, that's proved worthy. Peter wrote concerning it in 1 Peter 1, "...wherein ye greatly rejoice." Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom, though ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." The trial of faith is more precious than gold because this is the faith that builds our confidence in Jesus Christ. Riches won't help you 
when a child is dying. Your bank account is of no comfort to you when your child is in an accident or when you're overcome with a terrible disease. Riches will never come and place its arms around you and and tell you that it understands and give you peace when your heart is broken in grief. You ask any Christian that's been through the worst of times, through the worst of troubles, and they'll tell you there's only one thing that brought me through all of that, and that is the faith that I have in God. The faith that I have in Jesus Christ. You go through the worst because of faith. And this is what we see in, throughout Christian history, throughout our, even our own lives, that we understand the only thing that brings us through is faith in Christ. Only Christ brings relief in times of terrible grief. Someday, you'll come to the end of your life. We tend not to think of that very much, especially when we're young. But we're getting older, aren't we? And we start to think about that a little bit more. And we know that the day is going to come when we will leave this life. And then you'll know, you'll know then, just as the rich young man found out, that there's nothing that you accumulate in this life that will satisfy you. There's nothing that you can put into your bank that will help you to prepare to face eternity. And you'll learn just as Solomon did that wealth is vanity, wealth is vexation of spirit. And you learn that if you do this, that if you forego your spiritual health and you put all of your energy into your job or you put it into your vacations or into your recreation, you'll find out in the end that you've wasted your life. Have you thought about that? Have you ever seen through spiritual eyes that whenever you take something and substitute it for service to Jesus Christ, that those are withdrawals from heaven's bank account and those things can never be recovered? And did you know the scriptures say that we must redeem the time because the days are evil and for sure time is one thing that we can't get back. Christ counsels us to seek true wealth, true treasures that can never be taken away. And let me just say this, that when we talk about the pursuit of heaven and laying up treasures in heaven, we're not really speaking of a pie-in-the-sky type of hope where we're going to live in luxury and selfishness. Heaven's worth, heaven's treasures are not in finding out how much gold that you'll have when you get there, but you find out that heaven's real treasure is that everything that you have is in Jesus Christ. And when you have Him, the accumulation of wealth or self-satisfaction... Is something that you never think about. And so you're unconcerned about how much there is up there, even though there is more up there than you can ever imagine. But you do learn that there is no comparison in those things to being close to God. No one in heaven knows what it's like to be without. And so there isn't any concern there that something more could be had or something has been left behind or something that you need is missing. There are no no poor sections. There are no slums in heaven. All of us are rich in Christ. And He is more valuable than the earth's gold that's quickly gone after a few short years of this life. But the world counsels you to grab all that you can get now. That you've got to be satisfied now. They'll tell you, you only go around once in life, so you've got to gain it now. But why? If you die... With Christ, is that going to matter? Will you look back on your life and be sorry that you didn't have more while you were here? And will the riches of this life be at all comforting if you die without Christ? Do you think that 
You'll awaken hell with good memories of the earth and all the comfort that you had here. No, here's what you find out. A wasted life without Christ, knowing that you could have been in heaven, will add to the torture of eternity. When you think back, I had an opportunity today. Today I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I heard that once in Brian Baptist Church. But here I am in hell, and knowing that you could have believed right then, you could have received Christ right then, will torture you throughout eternity because you didn't listen and you didn't receive the most valuable thing that you could ever have, and that is life in Christ. And so faith is the gold that's far more valuable than any material junk that the prosperity preacher would have you buy. Now the Lord then made his point here about gold, And then he shifted over to another spiritual discipline, and this is the spiritual application of the desire to be clothed. And so he said, I counsel you to buy of me white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. So next we see that Jesus speaks of white clothing, and this is the discipline of virtue. And this part of his counsel Christ takes on the second of the Laodicean wealth centers, and this was the garment industry. They produced an excellent clothing that was made from the black wool of sheep they raised. I have a picture for you of the sheep from that area. And I wish that you could have seen, you could see this really up close and you could get the uh, fine detail because in the original picture, the deep blackness of the wool of this sheep is really impressive. And it's quite interesting that this clothing they made is black because that figured in perfectly to the Bible's picture of the blackness of sin. Their clothing was black, and Jesus said, your clothing needs to be white. Now, I can tell you that it makes little difference whether your physical clothing is black or white. You might not be quite as fashionable if you show up on Easter in black, but other than that, it's not going to affect you very much. But it does make an eternal difference if your, if your spiritual clothing is black or white. And it does make a difference if your soul is black, because to be black, according to the scriptures, is to be sinful, and it's to be lost, and to be on your way to hell. And strangely enough, to be spiritually black is also to be considered spiritually naked, and that's to be missing the clothes that you need to get entrance into heaven. In Matthew 22, Jesus told a parable about the requirement of proper clothing. He told the story of a king that had prepared a wedding feast for his son. And in the story, the the king refers to God the Father, and of course the son would represent Christ. And I don't have time to tell you that whole story. You should read it later. Mark down the reference, Matthew 22. But I can tell you that there were many people that were invited to a wedding feast. And when the king came in to, see the, uh, to see, the, see the guests and to greet them, he found that there was a man who was not wearing the clothing that was fit to wear to such a great occasion. And the king was greatly angered at the dishonor that was given to his son because this man didn't care to respect the occasion. And so the king commanded that they would bind the man and throw him out into the darkness. And in the parable, the darkness stands for hell. And Jesus went on to say that there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And the point that he was trying to make is that those who do not have the proper clothing 
will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here we find that this is the truth that Jesus teaches the Laodicean church. Black wool was emblematic of a black heart. It's black clothing. And Jesus emphasized that this black clothing is actually nakedness. And he considers the wrong clothing to be spiritual nakedness. Another interesting point is that in the Greek Hellenistic culture, they didn't have an aversion to nudity as the Jews were taught in the Mosaic Law. And there are many implications that we could explore on nudity because today's Laodicean culture cares very little for modesty. I've been to Walmart on many occasions and I've seen people that I want to say, what were you thinking when you got dressed this morning? Or rather, what were you thinking when you forgot to get dressed this morning? There isn't much shame exposing the body and being naked. And so when we read a scripture like this to a modern audience here in America, there's not much impact. You're used to naked people. You turn on the television and people are naked. Turn on your computer and there are naked people. You don't really have to search for this stuff. It just shows up in people in various stages of undress in advertisements that pop up on your on your computer. So you don't really search for it. There are just people in these different stages of undress. So nakedness really doesn't stun anybody anymore. Ride a bicycle through San Francisco without a stitch of clothing. Who notices? It's normal. We're a Gentile culture without Christian values, and that shows up in our lax morality. And that is characteristic of the Laodicean culture. But in God's law, nakedness was humiliating. To be stripped naked was to take away a person's dignity. Let me show you something in 2 Samuel 10. If you'll turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, this can give you an idea of the humiliation of nakedness in, in the minds of ancient people, what, what they thought about it and what God taught them about being naked. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, we have a story of David. David who was uh, trying to make an alliance or shore up an alliance that he had with the king of Ammon. 2 Samuel 10 verse 1. And it came to pass after this that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanan their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search out the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore Hanan took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle even to their buttocks and sent them away. When they told it unto David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. Hanan became the king upon his father's death, and he showed contempt for David when David sent his men as ambassadors to shore up that friendship that David had established with Hanan's father. And so Hanan cut off one half of the men's beards. That 
made them look foolish. The beard was a personal, very personal thing to Israelites. He cut off half of their beards and then he cut their clothes off down the back to expose their behinds. And the men were so humiliated at this that they didn't want to return to Jerusalem. And so David sent others to greet them and said, Turn aside and you can go into the city of Jericho. Go there first and let your beards grow again. And then you can be properly clothed and then you can come home. In other places, the prophets warned about shame on Israel because of their disobedience to God. And God said, I will cause your enemies to lead you away naked and barefoot. And they did that in the ancient world. Kings would conquer and they would strip their captives naked and they would parade them because that was the most humiliating thing that you could do. No one could suffer anything greater in his personal being than to be stripped naked and shown before others. And this is one of the reasons, of course, that they took the clothes away from Jesus. And though you see pictures of crucifixes and things like this with a loincloth on Christ, no, he was naked as he hung on the cross. And then on the other hand, though, to be dressed in fine clothing, to be dressed in the proper clothing, is to be honored. Pharaoh took Joseph out of prison and dressed him in fine clothing. Perhaps you remember the story in Esther, how that wicked Haman uh, said, or the king said to wicked Haman, King Ahasuerus said to him, what should be done to the man in whom the king delights? And Haman thought, he must be talking about me. And he said, let the royal clothing that the king wears be put on him in who the king delights. And this is what Jesus said to Laodicea. They put on their fine black clothing... But spiritually, that was nakedness, and it was humiliating. They'd gone as low as they could go. And may I remind you that this is the way that God sees those who promote the prosperity gospel. The preachers of it aren't great men of God. Their followers are not outstanding, faithful people. He says they're spiritually bankrupt. They're stripped naked of all righteousness. Their souls are blackened. And they're unfit to come to the wedding feast that God has prepared for His Son. Now the key, though, to this passage is the white clothing. And that stands for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We see it in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Do you see the language? A robe of righteousness, and that's compared to the clothing that's worn to the great wedding feast of Jesus Christ to his church. And that's the passage that Jesus drew on as he spoke that parable in Matthew 22, the parable of the marriage of the king's son. But do you want to know, what does the real church of Jesus Christ look like? Is it naked? Is it black? Is there sin upon the true church of Jesus Christ? Now this is the description of it in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. 
Oh, the church is the bride of Christ, and she is not naked. She is not black. She's clothed in righteousness, in fine linen, clean and white. And I believe this is a way that we know that the church at Laodicea was not saved. You, you remember, in the first message, I said, we have a real problem here with interpretation. Is this a church that's in the final stage of apostasy, or is it a church that's gone over and it's no longer a church? And I believe that we might find the answer to that question right here, that they are no longer a true church, and churches today are Laodicea, and they're unclothed, they're spiritually naked, and their souls are black. They're pretend Christians. And at the very least, we could say they're Christians that have become tools of the devil to, to lead to shameful complacency and contentment with the world. Do you understand? Churches today think very little of serving Christ. I mean, today they offer you Saturday services. And you ever thought, why? Because Sunday's too good of a day to give up to the Lord. So we'll just go in our convenience. Whenever it's convenient for us, then we'll go. Some of them think that we're crazy that we would commit ourselves to two services on Sunday. The Laodicean church serves self, not Christ. So I think there's a way that we can know that the assembly at Laodicea was unsaved people because everyone that's saved is clothed in righteousness and they're justified with God and they're dressed in the white robes of Christ. And if... You will be saved by the gospel of Christ. Those rags of self-righteousness must be removed and Christ must be put on by faith. No one can clothe themselves in their goodness. We have none. Our black clothes must be replaced with the white robes of Christ's righteousness. And didn't Jesus say there is none good but God? And if we will be good, we must wear the king's clothing. And then the righteousness of Christ is also our sanctification. To be sanctified means to be holy. And the only way that we're going to meet God is to be sanctified through the Holy Spirit's work in us. We must be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ to be clean and white. And I'll add to this that if you have been washed, your life will change. Your habits change. Your associations will change. Your contentment changes so that you're satisfied only with Christ. Why? Because your life has a different discipline. Your new life is virtuous. And if you claim to be a child of God and you say, I'm saved, but nothing has changed, then you're still naked. And neither will you sufficiently change by just cleaning up the outside, making yourself better look on the outside. No, there has to be a change on the inside. Putting on the right physical clothing and covering up physical nakedness is no guarantee that you're properly clothed in your heart. Faith in Christ is the change in clothing. The virtue that we wear is Christ's virtue. And he gives us those clothes. And once he gives them to us, we're never the same. So these are two areas of their wealth that Jesus showed that they needed discipline. They must be disciplined out of their self-sufficiency by changing their values. They must be disciplined out of their morality by changing their virtue. But then there's still another wealth center that Jesus used to make a spiritual application. And so thirdly, he talks about anointed eyes. And this is the discipline of vision. In verse 18, anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. 
The third center of wealth in Laodicea was a medical balm for soothing, irritated eyes. Now, we also understand through history that they produced a medicine for hearing, which would enhance the last time here that we see Jesus says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. But here in the 18th verse, Jesus concentrated on the eye salve. We don't know exactly what it was. There was something in that region of Phrygia that was soothing to the eyes. Some believe it was a powder that was mixed into a paste and then that was, that was all made up and then applied to sore eyes. Maybe some sort of an ancient visine for their vision. Someone said that the eyes are the windows to the soul. In scripture, seeing eyes is the same as understanding. We use that same term today. If, if someone explains a concept to you and you say, oh, now I see, that means that you understand. Do you know, those are some of the sweetest words that a pastor can hear after explaining difficult theological concepts. Someone finally says, now I see, and that's great. That makes me happy. Some say, I see the light, and that means they have understanding. Seeing in spiritual terms is to have your understanding open to the gospel. It's to have spiritual eyes open and understanding enlightened, as Paul explains in Ephesians 1. There he wrote in verse 17 through 20, "...that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened." that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Is that a better vision? Is it better to be enlightened to the hope of Christ's calling and the riches of your inheritance in him? Would, would you like to better understand the glories of Christ? Do you want spiritual eyes to be opened? When that happens, the mind is renewed and the vision is changed to, to see the value of Christ. And it's better than anything that's offered in the prosperity gospel. Enlightened eyes, opened understanding will cause you to make the right choice. It'll cause you to forsake the world and to forsake prosperity, to give all of that up for Christ. And you'll learn how gladly give it up to have life. And that's what you get in Christ. Let me take you back for just a minute to that rich man that asked Jesus the question about eternal life. His attitude fit the model of the Laodicean church. And what did he have to compare with as he listened to Jesus? He knew that he was missing something. He had riches. He was at the top of the financial ladder, but he didn't find it satisfying as he assumed that it would be. Something was missing because the wealth he had didn't bring him peace. Do you know what it did to him? It left him still searching. And he had no assurance that when he died that he would be in heaven with God. Although in his common teaching and his upbringing, as he lived in that Jewish culture, they taught him and the rabbis taught him that wealth, that is the sign of God's favor. That's eternal life if you can be rich. That wasn't a nickel's worth of difference, if you'll pardon the pun, between today's prosperity preachers. 
But he found their promises were empty. The prosperity preacher says, get wealth. Then you'll have assurance. He had wealth, and there was none. And so what did he have to compare to? Oh, his eyes were fastened on his luxurious lifestyle. He saw food and houses and vacation time and fine clothes. And he says, I've got all the advantages that poor people don't have. I could imagine this man growing up, growing old, and being the rich man in the story of Lazarus, who fared sumptuously every day, but then came down to the end of his life and went to hell, leaving his riches behind. You see, the riches, that, that's the thing. That's the security that, that poor people don't have. This was his vision as he talked with Christ. Oh, he could survey all that he had, and then he could compare it to what Christ offered. And what did he see when he looked at Jesus? Jesus had nothing. He told his followers, I, I don't have a place to call home. I, I don't have a place where I can lay my head. And I don't want you to mistake the meaning of that because Jesus did not say he was a hopeless, homeless person. No, he meant that he never relied on the security of owning anything material, such as a house. For breakfast, Jesus didn't have servants to come and feed him, bring him his food. Instead, he would look for figs on a tree. And if he found none, he didn't eat. You remember that story from Matthew 21? His clothes were common, probably worn and tattered from the rigors of his travels. He never stopped to shop at the places that sold Laodicean clothes. He told his followers that their only security was faith, that they must believe that when they were hungry, they would be fed. They must believe that when they needed clothes, they would have clothes. They must believe that when they're ready to sleep at night that there would be some dear saint of God that would offer them a place to go to sleep. Most of us would be sick if that was our security. You mean God wants us to live every day by faith? Is that what you're saying? I believe investment bankers and fund managers would hate Christianity if all of us said we're just going to live by faith. Now to be honest, if John told me, that is John Bunn, If John Bunn told me, all the church bank accounts are empty, we can't pay the bills, we can't pay you, I believe I'd be a basket case. I mean, you see, it doesn't do any any good for me to lie to you. I'm human just as you. And I haven't arrived at perfect faith, and none of us have, because we're all concerned about this. What about tomorrow? And Jesus says, you don't need to be concerned. And we find out that when all the world systems fail, what happens? We still eat. And we still wear clothes. And we still have some place to sleep. And this is what that rich young man had to weigh when he spoke, when he spoke to Jesus. He had, he had security that Jesus said, you must give this up. Now, giving it up wasn't going to save him, but it would show that his faith that he trusted Jesus more than the security that the world offers. So his vision, his sight, was to take two things and to compare two things that look drastically unequal. In fact, everything the world offers seems to be superior, hands down, no argument. But still, he couldn't understand, why am I not content? Why is there no peace in my heart? He should have had it. He's got the security the world offers. 
And friends, that's the reason you need understanding of Christ. That's why understanding of Him is required. That's why spiritual eyes must be opened to see the sense of rejecting all the world has to take up the reproach of the cross. And then the rich young man would have learned if he stayed down around just a little bit longer that Jesus would also say to his followers, you will be hated, you will be thrown out of the synagogues, and many of them would die cruel deaths just as Jesus did. Some of them would be Lady Jane Grey, martyred because they loved Christ more than life itself. The rich man saw all of that. And he didn't see himself bearing the hatred of the world. People followed him around, patting him on the back, told him how great that he was because God blessed him with money. There was a lot for him to consider. Until your eyes are opened by faith, you will never understand the reason that what Jesus offers is better than anything the world offers. Our mind is closed to that truth. How will it be opened? It takes a miracle. It takes a miracle that only the Holy Spirit can do. And we've got to learn that. Only God can do this for us. Only God opens blinded eyes. Well, I've reached the end of time for today. I've not reached the end of the material. There's still more to consider on these implications of spiritual blindness in verse 18. And I have another sermon with me. And I can slide right over into that sermon and just go on preaching. A few weeks ago, Bob told me, you've got permission to do that. Speak as long as you like. But in the interest of saving Bob and me from hungry Laodiceans, I'm going to stop. And uh, in two weeks, we'll come back and talk about this some more. Now, I suppose that some of you might say, when are we going to be done with these sermons on the seven churches? And my question is, does that really matter? Does it matter when we'll be done? Because when we're done with these, we'll just, we'll just pick up another sermon or sermons that are still about what Christ said to the churches. And we still got to listen to it. But I said I'd stop and I will. You've heard the gospel of Christ today. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if you hear any other message than that one, beware. You're in a Laodicean church. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking you, Lord, we want to be sure that we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we do know, Lord, that your word says that when we believe, that you will put your clothes on us, that we will have the robes of righteousness that are required what we must wear in order to enter into heaven. Lord, help us never to substitute what the world has to offer because every time that we do, we rob from the treasures that we can have in heaven. And I do pray, Lord, today, if there is someone here that doesn't know you as Savior or someone who's struggling with these issues and has the world in front of them all of the time and that's where they want to live and that's where they think that they can find satisfaction I pray, Lord, you would open their eyes to the truth of this. One day we will die. And when we die, the only thing that counts is where is our faith? What have we believed? And we must believe that salvation is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Speak to our hearts today, Lord, and 
draw Christians close to you and help us, Lord, to really understand we need to give more of our time, our energy, of ourselves to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see through our efforts others come to know you as Savior. Bless us today, Lord. Be with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.